I want to invite you to turn within your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17 to 24. 1 Corinthians 7, 17 to 24. My message title is, this is a gospel principle, live as you are called. And in this text, Paul uses the word call as a calling ten times. In seven verses. So it's a very significant idea that's in this text. And uh, it's kind of like a pause. We've been talking about, you know, very practical concerns relating to marriage. And, and he's kind of taking a step back a little bit and thinking of the big principle that can apply to everyone's life, no matter where you find yourself. But as we think about the word call, we want to ask ourselves, is there a difference between a calling and being called? And that's a question, and and I want us to think a little bit about that by uh, turning back in our Bibles. I know I just said go to chapter 7, but look at verse chapter 1. Flip back to chapter 1. And I want us to see how Paul uses these words in two different ways. The same word, two different ways. In chapter 1, verse 9, uh, Paul says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And as he uses the word call here, it's the concept of a call, and it's a basic way of describing conversion, a Christian's turning from the world and entering into relationship with God himself. And so there's a point when I was not in a relationship with Christ, and now I am. I was deaf, but now I am hearing. I was blind, but now I see. Just like Paul on the road to Damascus, he had a moment of conversion where he clearly saw Jesus as the Son of God who was speaking to him, calling him into relationship with him. Last week while I was away, I got a phone call while I was in Louisville, Kentucky, and my daughter was on the other end of the line. And uh, she said, Daddy, I got saved. (laughs) And then she said, now I'm adopted twice. And that's her point of conversion. Have you had that call? Has your heart turned to see Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords? It can happen at any moment, but it needs to happen. It may happen when you're young. It may happen when you're older. And the call itself is, is, is beautiful, but it comes to each of us in unique social settings. And that's the other way in which this word is sometimes used. If you're in chapter 1, drop down to verse 26. Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers, how not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak, in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. 
And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that as it is written, the let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And Paul, in this little paragraph, is talking about where you've been called from as a sense of where, you, where you've come to know Christ, and that itself has a calling in itself. So let's turn back to chapter 7 and see how Paul uses this word. And in 17 through 24, Paul's consistently talking about it as your social setting of where you've been converted from. And that's very unique and also a part of the plan of God. And so in verse 17, let's read it now through 24. He says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a free man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let them, excuse me, let him remain with God. And so, Paul wants us in this text to recognize that just as the call to conversion is from the Lord, so is the social setting to which you've been called in. And so that all those circumstances were arranged by God and take note of what God has brought you to and, and brought you from. And it might be that God wants you to stay in that kind of relational setting for a time and a season for a very genuine purpose. I think it's important and helpful for us to understand that in verse 17, the word assigned is a providential word. It, it speaks of God's orchestration of events. And I think as believers for a long period we, of time, some of us might be familiar with Psalm 139, which says, O Lord, you search me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. And I think it's helpful for us to realize that God, yes, is afar, but he's very intimately involved with our lives. And so he orchestrates our birth. He puts us into relational patterns. He knows where and when we turn to Christ, and he's assigned to us a place and a purpose. Whether we come to Christ as a child, like my daughter did, or whether we come to him as an adult with, with relational structures around us. And so I think what we need to see in this text is that, that God's grace, and by God's grace, we are able to live out our calling in Christ no matter where he calls us. This is, I believe, the big idea here in this text. And I think it might be helpful just to have an adult illustration here of conversion because 
some of us, like myself and like my daughter in time, won't be able to fully relate. It's important for us to understand that there are people who come to Christ not at a young age and come with all kinds of concerns. In my office, I have a short uh, testimony file in which I collect little testimonies particularly the ones that come in Christianity today. It's, in the, it's like the, one of the first things I look for when, when the magazine comes into my office. And uh, one particular uh, uh, testimony really caught my attention and, and was provoking me this week, um, in particular of a girl named Emily Armstrong. And she, lived in, she lives in London, Ontario, Canada. And I think that may be part of what caught my attention. But having grown up in London, Ontario, um, she realized that she could act smart, that she could kind of put on and project perfection for people, that she had everything underneath of her control. And, and as she got older, in her surroundings, she kept acquainted with the Baha'i faith. I don't know if you are familiar with the Baha'i faith, but they believe that all major religions were founded by manifestations of God. So, for example, Moses is a manifestation of God, and so also Muhammad and Confucius. All these are manifestations of the same God. And the Baha'i faith is the, the final concluding greatest manifestation of, of God. And so, as she became integrated, she started learning that there were things of expectation that required of, of her, and she sought began to realize that her ability to project f- perfection wasn't really, she really wasn't able to do what she thought she could do. And she soon began to unravel, and she started to skip the ceremonial washings that she had to do every day, and she started to um, struggle to maintain the long ritualistic prayers that she was required to, and to cap it all off, she started dating a non-Baha'i person who thought that her Baha'i faith was strange. And so she began to switch between the holiness that this Baha'i faith was trying to get her to to live out, and she started doing whatever seemed right in her own eyes, and she started moving in with this young man named Aaron, and then they just were living together. And after graduation from college and also living with this young man, she had found herself in a great deal of debt, spiraling out of control. And she tried to pay off these loans with these these ideas, and she got herself caught into the porn industry. Through scam, she was promised a lot of wealth, and in the end, she got nothing, just humiliation. And so she abandoned that effort, yet God moved through a personal friend who invited this, this couple to an alpha group, which is an exploratory into Christianity. It's a, it's, a, it's a Bible study that, that teaches a person about Christ. And as they went to it, they persevered for the first couple of meetings. And then Aaron decided to read a Bible because he wanted to know a little bit more about Christianity so he could make fun of these Christians. Well, she started reading the Bible, and she says that things got really weird. They started receiving all kinds of hang-up calls, They had night terrors. In fact, she woke up with scratches on her body, nightmares. And one one night she saw Aaron being impersonated, impersonated by some spirit being. And as she 
cried out under terror. She knew from her understanding of Christianity that she couldn't do everything that she was expected to, to be holy before a righteous God. And under the covers, she cried out to God, God, save me. God, save me. And she turned to Christ. And so she began to worry after that, that maybe she would have to say goodbye to Aaron, that maybe would, she, would he come to faith? And then Aaron eventually asked Jesus to save him as well, and then they were both free. And did they, they live happily ever after, after that? Well, the testimony goes on, and that they did, the demonic influences were, were diminished, <laughs> but then she began to have trials. People began to think of her as, oh, you're just better than us. And then she had to figure out somehow, how are we going to own this house together and we're not married and live celibately until the day of our marriage? And she had to try to figure out some of those things. Why did I share this testimony with you? Well, the reason is that God called Emily, God called Aaron, into a relationship with Christ, but yet her social setting was there. It was also arranged by God, and she was living with an unbeliever as if she was married, and now she was trying to struggle, now how do I follow Christ and be obedient to him in this situation that I'm finding myself in? Now, Emily's experience is a lot like many who are converted as young singles. But there are older singles that are also at times living immorally and some are converted while married to a believer. There are some people who are also converted and they're married to an unbeliever. There's all different kinds of scenarios that we might find ourselves in when we come to Christ. And so what Paul is saying here, no matter what your relational status is at the time you're calling, that relational status could be viewed as a place in which you can demonstrate your faith and obedience to Christ. And so in this text, he wants us to realize that our relationship with Christ is primary, not the relationships that we find ourselves in when we come to Christ. All else is secondary. And how we demonstrate our relationship with Christ is by our obedience to what he tells us to do. Well, for Emily, it was that she needed to arrange her life different until she was married. See, the call of Christ, if it has made an essential difference in our life, It doesn't necessarily mean that we will have to rearrange all of our relationships, but we need to be faithful to what God has commanded in those relationships. In time, the two did become married, and they followed the Lord in what he had told them to do. But I think it's important for us to realize that that Paul is careful. He's trying to think through all the kinds of relationships that one might come to when they come to Christ. Now, The big idea here is laid out three ways, very parallel ways in this text. Let's look at verse 17 for a minute. I want you to see this repetitive pattern. In verse 17, he says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Drop down to verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. 
Verse 24. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called there, let him remain with God. And so, he's repeating this to emphasize this. But in the midst of this repetition, he throws in two illustrations to show us that being in Christ is so much greater than our previous human relationships, that it now is primary. And so he gives two examples how, of how this is much greater. And in verses 18 to 20, being in Christ has made a cultural distinction, has made all of our cultural distinctions secondary things. That's the first illustration. He talks about circumcision. And then he talks about social distinctions And he uses the image of slavery in showing us how that those things don't matter as much as being related to Christ and how much more important that is in our thinking. And so let's consider these illustrations as as kind of his reason why. Why is it uh, that our relationship with Christ is primary and that all else is secondary? Let's think about that, that being Christ makes a big difference in our cultural relations Now, in verse 18 to 20, he uses this illustration of circumcision. Now, Paul takes something that has had formerly religious value for Jews and makes it very secondary. He says, now, compared to the work of Christ, this thing that you did as Jewish people is not critical. It's a pretty bold statement on the part of Paul. Very There are many Jews, actually, that were very embarrassed about circumcision, and they were embarrassed in the Greek and Roman culture in which they lived. One writer during during the time period, just prior to the beginning of the New Testament, described how that some Jewish men would make themselves, through surgical means, to appear uncircumcised. That's pretty drastic. Now, let's not dwell on this real long. Because it's a little bit awkward. But Paul may indeed be referring literally to doing that practice. But I believe that he's really even thinking larger than that to the idea of any attempt to cover up an ethnic background or a cultural heritage that you might have. And it kind of reminds me of a, of a, a friend of mine in so, who, who grew up in South Africa. He told me that when he moved to Canada at the age of 12... He dropped his accent overnight. He didn't want to be, you know, looked at as different from the rest of the kids. And he, 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 he did that as soon as he could. Um, kind of eschewing his cultural heritage. I, I, I kind of remember, of, you know, also thinking of our trip to D.C. this summer, of how we, we looked up an Ethiopian restaurant uh, to take Anna, because, you know, there isn't a whole lot of that culture in our area. And so we, we found one in the D.C. area. And you know, what I, you know what I found myself doing? I felt like I had to apologize the whole meal to the staff that, that we had Americanized her. You know, that she was kind of picky and she wanted to go to McDonald's instead. <laughs> now, we might not think a whole lot about some of these cultural concerns or for that matter, even equate circumcision today with any religious value. But I think it's important to understand what Paul is saying, is that we as human beings tend to attach 
religious values to things that are non-essential. You know, there's a tendency, if we're not careful, to say in our minds, if we do these things, then we will be known as being dedicated. Or we might project on others, if you do these things, then we will know that you are dedicated. For example, I remember of cultural heritage within Christianity in the 1980s when culottes were a sign of spirituality. Now, some of you in here don't even know what a culotte is. Count yourself blessed. In fact, I grew up in a church that if, a men, if men did not wear a suit to church or you didn't carry the correct Bible or use the prescribed songs, then you might not actually be saved. Well, you might be saved, but even if you were saved, it might be as by fire. That was kind of the attitude. But there is, I think, at times, a human tendency to attach a religious value to non-essentials. And we've got to guard against that because what's most important is Christ in the gospel. That's what matters. Some of these cultural distinctives and strictures that we place around people, we, we make them conform to an artificial standard that's not required by God. Paul says, don't make cultural distinctives more important than the gospel. And we can have sub-Christian cultural distinctives if we're not careful. They have nothing to do with a relationship with Christ. So what Paul is saying here is very bold. And if you think what I'm saying is bold, consider what Paul is saying as even infinitely more bold. Because he's saying, look, being a Jew is actually of no value. That's like saying, hey, you Americans, it's of no value. You ought to be Canadians. No, I'm sorry. That would be very, that's the kind of caliber of bold that he's talking here. I think we need to be very careful What does matter? In the matter, in the end, Paul says those things don't matter. What does matter is keeping the commandments of God. That's what he says in verse 19. So I'm going to pause here for just a moment. And I love you. I love all of you. But what we call a service in the end doesn't matter. Whether it's called a gathering or whether it's called a service, in the end, it doesn't matter. As long as we're fulfilling the commands of Christ, which is to make disciples. In the end, it matters very little to God how we get that part done. In verse 19, he says, keep the commandments of God. So what does he mean? Is he now saying, okay, well, you know, don't have to do the circumcision thing. You don't have to do the circumcision thing. But now he says, okay, you've got to keep the commandments of God. Is he now saying now you've got to live your life by works and be saved by works? Is that what he's saying? No, that's not what he's saying. Let's let Paul tell us what he's saying. Turn back to Romans chapter 2 for a minute. In Romans chapter 2, verse 25 to 29... He says, 
For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. For if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely outward, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise then comes from, from his praise is not from man, but from God. What is Paul saying? What God is most concerned about is your heart, that you're willing to follow where he takes you. That you will follow his commands. So we keep the commandments of God, and that's the highest priority, not to earn our way with Christ, but to demonstrate our love for Christ. It's by the Spirit. You know, you can do all the external forms, you can wear the suit, and then you can sow discord. What is a greater violation of the command of God? You know, if you were raised to wear a suit and you want to wear a suit, that's fine. If you weren't raised to wear a suit and you come modestly dressed, that's fine. You're coming to gather with God's people. That's what's most important. God's command is modesty of the heart which transfers to a body. And there are so many ways to keep God's commandments. In the end, God doesn't really care so much about the formality of our worship or the freeness of our worship. What God cares is about the the obedience of the heart that wants to do what Christ wants us to do. Why is so Paul, why is he so hung up about circumcision? Well, it's because if you require this, you've totally destroyed the law. You've destroyed the gospel itself. And that's what's most primary. You've destroyed the way of salvation and you make it a stumbling block for people. Second illustration here this morning, looking at back at chapter 7. Verse 21 to 24, being in Christ has made social distinctions secondary matters. Now he's talking to people, bond slaves, and the second illustration may have affected about a third of the church. Slavery was a social status, certainly. It was a social status, but it was not the kind of slavery that we have known in American history. You know, people from northern Europe were at times enslaved in Rome, and they looked a whole lot like us. Slavery was different, but in the end, slavery was still slavery. But Paul wanted to make it very clear that you could still serve God as a slave. 
Even if you have the opportunity to be free, he says, you know, that's, that's something that you should avail yourself. But if that's not a realistic possibility for you, the reality is that that social distinction doesn't in the end matter because your relationship with the God of heaven is what matters. So don't let your social statuses bother you. Your social status is not primary. Your relationship with Christ is. And so he gives a concluding thought here in verse uh, 23, a theological thought. He says, well, you were bought with a price. That's why that relationship matters. You were bought with a price. We're not our own anyway. And it's external circumstances that don't cause us to sin. It's the heart that causes us to sin. So we can follow Christ if we're circumcised, if we're uncircumcised, if we're enslaved, whether we're free, whether we're married, whether we're unmarried. You can serve God by His grace no matter where you have been called. Your marital status is nothing compared to the gospel. Those are all secondary. Now, what he says there about being bought with a price... It should sound familiar to us because it's what he said to people who were committing immorality back in chapter 6. In chapter 6, verse 12, he says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meat for the stomach and stomach for the food. And God will destroy both one and the other. And the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take them to be members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin that a person commits outside the body, but for the sexually immoral person, sins against his own body. Or do you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So Paul is saying, look, if you've come to Christ and you are a single person, you can honor God with your body and follow what he commands. God is concerned about your celibacy as an unmarried person. And if you are married, he is concerned about your faithfulness to your spouse. It's God's will for you, 1 Thessalonians 4 says. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. So see, Paul is concerned about the married, the unmarried. Whether you've found yourself unmarried as a widow, as a divorcee, or as a chaste virgin, or if you're married, whether to a believer or to an unbeliever. You can still live out Christ. And so in that testimony that I had 
us think about earlier in the service, about Emily and Aaron, when they came to Christ, they decided that their relationship with Christ was so far greater that for them, they were going to live celibately and chastely and honor Christ. They were willing to be obedient to whatever he commanded. See, our relationship with Christ is primary. Marital statuses are secondary. And it's important for us to understand the primacy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I need to pause here in conclusion and think, what if you have not been faithful to Christ? Is there hope in the matter of sexual sin? Absolutely there is hope. The blood of Jesus Christ was spilt for that sin. You know, David, the man after God's own heart, was broken by the sin of his adultery. He confessed his sin to the Lord, and he did find forgiveness. Although consequences of his sin were going to be felt ultimately in his heart, he had been scrubbed white as snow. And he found ways in which he could teach others in the way. So I think it's important for us to understand that when we, you know, when we are called by God at the point of conversion or our circumstances might not be ideal, maybe we've been divorced and we might be married to an unbeliever. What if they leave us? What do we do? Paul says that you can still live out your Christian life. Why? And this is the great encouragement in this text. And I want us to think and meditate on that. In verse 24, Paul says, So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. God is with you in any circumstance you find yourself in. He will not abandon you. He will not forsake you. And he will hold you fast. He will keep you. And because that relationship is primary, we don't have to worry about some of those those other things that tend to plague our thinking. The relationship with Christ is most important. Let's pray.